Welcome to the Get Together. (laughs) There we go. This is our show about how to bring communities to life that can bridge the gaps between us in a digital world. I'm your host, Bailey Richardson. And I'm Kyle Mercoto. Bailey's co-host today and dispatching from Singapore. Hello, cross global, across the world. Kai and I are partners at People & Company with Kevin and co-authors of Get Together, How to Build a Community with Your People. Each episode of this podcast, we interview everyday people who have built extraordinary communities about just how they did it. How did they get the first members to show up? How did they grow to hundreds, thousands more people? We'll ask them those questions and more today. Each episode, we interview everyday people who have built extraordinary communities about just how they did it. How did they get the first people to show up? How did they grow to hundreds or thousands more members? In this episode, Kai, our third business partner in Singapore, is going to jump in because we are interviewing a woman who he met on his side of the planet. A woman he was introduced to by our client and good friend, Lei Chun. Shout out to Lei Chun. Shout out, Lei Chun. <laughs> that woman is Quick Xiao Yin. Kai, can you share a bit about uh, Yin with us in the audience? Yeah. Um, I've been living in Singapore for the past eight years with my family. And many of us who live here know of her, uh, not only for her two stints as a nominated member of parliament here, but for her clear, impassioned speeches in Parliament that, you know, go viral. Uh, She's been called the Singaporean voice of youth. Outside of her time in Parliament, Xiao Yin uh, commits her time to quilting the fabric of Singapore. In 2002, she started a school called the School of Thought. She wanted to bring emotional intelligence into schooling. And she built that school up with just pure grit. And, you know, by the end of their first year, they were 100 kids strong. You know, clearly there was a demand here. And that school is still around 18 years later. But Xiao Yin and their partners have expanded their impact. Today, they call themselves a thought collective and run a number of social businesses and programs that build up the social and emotional capital of the city. Uh, Everything from these uh, communal restaurants, which I eat at whenever I go to the Singapore Museum or the Botanical Gardens here, uh, hosting inter-religious conversations between Singaporeans, and building a space in an old library, which I got to visit, where some of the exciting teams in the public and private sector work alongside each other, you know, day by day. I can still remember that you messaged me so excitedly mm-hmm. about Xiao Yin telling me we absolutely had to have her on the podcast. So tell us, you know, why is Xiao Yin such a, a great fit for talking about community building with us today? And why were you so stoked to bring her on? Yeah, you know, in, in two words, build with, you know, Xiao Yin embodies our thesis of build with, you know, she shares our belief that one must build a community with your people, not for them. But she's doing it at a scale that I've yet to encounter myself. You know, she's doing it at a country level. She's attempting and succeeding in helping build the future of Singapore at both the government level, where she served as a parliamentary member, and also grassroots, right, where she's creating great leaders uh, through the Thought Collective. But what I admire most about her, what stuck out to me, is that she has this equal balance of three things. Clarity of thought, kindness, And this get shit done mindset. But a lot has changed since I called you excitedly to tell you about Xiaoyin. You know, today, Singapore is in most parts of the world is in a COVID-19 nationwide lockdown. What, you know, we call here a circuit breaker. 
uh, we're into now our second week and, you know, we've got another, you know, month and a half and possibly longer. So Xiao Yin has to contend with the reality that the business and initiatives that she has been building for the past eight years methodically, you know, they're being forced to completely transform or they face shutting down. It's something that almost every entrepreneur and community leader is confronted with today. So I wanted to hear how she's managing through it, both intellectually and emotionally. Wonderful. Such a great introduction. Yeah, I think when you describe that she has this balance of clarity of thought, kindness and get shit done mindset, I think that's such a powerful combination. And anyone who listens to the interview will absolutely walk away feeling the same. So let's jump in. Xiaoyan, we are so happy to have you on the podcast today. I wanted to kick off Alastair Gray, who was a Scottish writer and an artist, frequently used an epigram in his books. And it reads like this. Work as if you live in the early days of a better nation. I can see how how active you are in building the future of Singapore. And my question to you is, how did you get there? Was there a moment in your upbringing where you transitioned from maybe being more passive to active about your country and the direction it was headed? Hmm, I think that the strange thing for me in my story is I don't think there was like a moment in my childhood where I became patriotic or started thinking actively of my country. Uh, In the Singapore context, I think most of us get used to having a very good and efficient government. We get used to it for a long time. And the bad thing about it is it actually makes you kind of passive. Because you're just assuming that the government's always going to be taking care of you and you don't really need to do very much except just trust them, right? So so I didn't have to think very much about like, what do I want to do for my country? We are a very young country, so we haven't had as many cycles of trauma, if I can put it that way, as even your country. So your country's yeah, seen also as a young one in, in, in the world, right? But we're only like 50 years old. So I think we've only had like World War Two. We've had a first taste of pandemic. I would say actually this is probably the closest equivalent to a second major trauma. At least my generation is going through. I didn't think too hard about my country. I was just busy trying to, yeah, just trying to do what every hardworking Singaporean student does, which is you're just trying to study, you're trying to listen to your parents like, and, and get yourself into a good career. Yeah. So I think my turning point, honestly, for me was, it was when I was 18. And for the first time, I have to consider what do I want to study in university? And it sounds like such a minor story. It's not very groundbreaking. (laughs) But it was like the first adult decision that I actually had to consider. Like, actually, what do I want to study? And because that leads up to who I want to be as an adult. And all of the presumed pathways that were laid out for a hard-working student in Singapore were you either go to the government and you serve as a scholar, or you be a lawyer, and that's it, you know, or, or you be a teacher. All of those things didn't sound super appealing to me. And I think... It's funny that you did end up doing at least two of those. <laughs> Not to jump forward, but... <laughs> yeah, that, that is another story on its own. Like, I, I was not... I was not looking for a position in in Parliament at all. Um, But I like to tell that story of granularity so that people understand that this this is not about I have an epic story or it was superheroism, but it was just an 18-year-old suddenly thinking, actually, what is the meaning of like this choice that's in front of me? 
And it really was triggered by, I don't want to live a certain kind of life. I want to live a, I'm not sure even what to call it. But if I had to put words into my 18-year-old mouth back then, I think I was just searching for meaning. I wanted to live a life that had personal meaning to me and all of the above options weren't great. So I think that was the very first time where I started to exercise my own agency. And again, back then, I didn't have the vocabulary to name it then. It was just, I don't want to make the choice that the system wants to make for me. I don't even want to make the choice that my parents want for me. I just want something that is me. And back then, it was as stupid as, I don't want to be in a regular office job and I don't want to be in a government job. And I told my mom, I want to be an artist. And I want to go to study in New York. Not because I gave a damn about art, but it sounded the most far out weird thing I could ask for. And it sounded fun at least. And of course, my parents thought it was a terrible idea, you know, because they're, they're, they're traditional Chinese parents. So art is like, it doesn't earn any money. Why would you want to do that? So I settled into architecture as a compromise, actually. And I would have honestly just settled for being a mediocre architect. Except the major deal breaker for me was when I became a Christian uh, in my second year at university. And anyone who's converted to a faith at midpoint in their life knows that it is a major decision to make. It's, it's again, a very large, what is the meaning of my life? Like I, I didn't grow up in this particular faith. So why am I picking it for? And I didn't have an answer. No one could give me an answer. And I just decided that I wanted to search for the largest meaning that resonated for me, that I could frame my entire life around. And this idea that your life is not your own, your life is meant to be lived out for a larger story, for a larger system even. Yeah, but what does that even mean? No one hands you a rule book for that. But I decided that's where I want to put my bets on. And I'm going to spend my life trying to figure out what that means for me. So that's where it actually all started. Yeah. I know that you later left architecture and, you know, but I remember I visited the Eames house in Los Angeles where Charles and Ray Eames lived, right, looking over the water and read this quote from, I can't remember if it was Charles or Ray, I think Charles. And he talked about how the role of a designer was that of a host, that your job is to determine the needs of your guests and sort of predict them and create for their needs. Is there anything about how you learn to think as an architect, train to think or train to approach, you know, building homes or building physical spaces for human beings that has affected how you work now? Okay, first of all, in my, I only spent three years in architecture school and it became very clear even from day one that I'm going to be a terrible architect because I don't care about construction details. But the parts about architecture that I loved is the parts which you named, which was sort of like conceptualizing what does the world need or what do people need? And what are the ideas that you need to string together into a cohesive concept and structure out that idea in a way that it can be executed? So that part I love, but not so much the let's execute it now with bricks and mortar, but I like the, the initial part. And I think that is the essence of a work of a designer. In some sense, you are, you are sitting there trying to create something out of nothing. And all you have is thoughts or perspectives or ideas, things which are invisible. And you've got to somehow put it together in a, in a structural blueprint that people can live with, that people can live within, yeah, that can last. I mean, 
great architects aspire to make things that really, really last. And I think that sits well for me from a community building perspective, if you like, today. Like, yeah, I, I do want to design things that manage to survive me. That's the, like, the gold standard. And I don't know if I can get there, but that, that, that's what I aspire to. It's actually your experience with the architecture too. You you ended up building a physical place or help build and execute a physical place that I got to see it. So you keep on running away from these things and you keep on circling back to actually doing them. You know, the, the thought collective, the common ground, that space is, you know, so thoughtful. Had a chance to walk through it and you did create this manifestation, this design. When I came to visit you, one of the reasons why I decided I'm going to be your friend. <laughs> it's the, the story. It's because of the space that you built in there, the uh, the interfaith uh, space. And, uh, you know, one of our key ethos is uh, we believe that, you know, to build a community, you need to build with, not build for. And do you mind just sharing that story and how you actually went and uh, uh, built it with all these religious leaders? When Kai visited Common Ground, I remember telling him like, well, there's a lot of incomplete spaces. The building is deliberately complete yet incomplete. There are physical spaces within our building that are sort of set aside for exploring possibilities. So one of the small spaces in our building was dedicated to interfaith. We had told our architect to set aside a small space actually to include like uh Muslims who are needing a place to pray because Muslims pray like five times a day, right? And it started us thinking of like, why are we building a space just for Muslims to pray? Like, doesn't everybody need to pray? Like, why is it only like Muslims who are thinking of this all the time? Like, is there a wisdom in that? And so we started talking to our Muslim colleague about like, what would it be like? Like, is it possible for the Muslims to share the space with others? And how would that be like? And that got us thinking about how why are we having this conversation only with our Muslim colleague as if she represents the entire like, you know, community out there? So that's when we put kind of like two and two together and like, hey, you know, one of our resident partners in this building is an interfaith facilitator. And this is his work as well. You know, it's not just Common Ground's work. So we asked him like, hey, do you want to partner us and design like a ground up process of like, hey, we have a space that we might want to make an interfaith space or whatever we want to call it. We don't know, but we are intrigued by it. And who wants in? <laughs> so we designed a process together with the, our interfaith stakeholder. And yeah, we went through different rounds of first, we invited a whole bunch of young people to come in, look at the space. We tell them our intentions and they give us their perspective about like whether they think it's okay, not okay to share the space. What would it look like? And then after the young people, then we got together uh, people who lived in the physical neighborhood around the, the, the building and they gave their perspective. Yeah. And only after all that, did we then invite religious leaders and we told them like, hey, uh, by the way, this is what everybody else has been saying as well. And this is where it uh, links together and doesn't link together what you said. And so now we have all of this and it, it's a long process which has been cut off by the pandemic but yeah i think we are so intrigued with like would regular people if given a chance to intervene upon a real physical space like what kind of ownership can you slowly build up people who would never have thought of an interfaith space but now like they're like 
yeah, actually, why not? Why, why, why don't we have this? Where we are in the process right now is discovering that what people are not really needing is an interfaith space, but they're looking for a space where I can just... When I think of Singapore, like you said, from a distance, I think of it as a pretty finely tuned machine. There's a lot of focused power and it's operating compared to the United States from my eyes, like quite seamlessly. So I'm wondering, you know, we talk a lot about building with, not just having a government that builds for Singaporeans, building with its citizens, getting people involved in the process is something I know you care about a lot. Why do you believe that is so crucial to Singapore today? Well, I think our country was built a bit on trauma. So the very first, let me put it this way, like the founding leaders of Singapore, they were scarred by two big things, which my generation never had to go through. They were scarred by number one, growing up in the Japanese occupation. So that was war, right? And like, never do we want to be occupied again. And before we were occupied by the Japanese, we were colonized by the British and had gotten used to the idea that the Brits are always going to be in power. Then the Japanese came and that threw that idea out the window. So they had to go through that trauma. And then after that, there was that whole struggle of like, well, now that the war has ended, the British kind of don't want their colonies anymore because they are trying to fix their own system. And we are left to figure out our own fate. And that was the whole, let's see if we want to get together with Malaysia. And Malaysia decides, no thanks. And, you know, so think of it as if, if you were growing up or if you were charged to lead a country back then and you are 30-something years old, which is where our founding leaders were, like, and all of this trauma is happening, right? You just get into your head that the only way to get our whole country going is just to take control and just push this entire country forward. And that worked really, really well for the time. Uh, that was so needed. And that was what got Singapore on this amazing, successful trajectory. And that's not the time where, oh, let's consult, let's talk with you, let's partner. It's like, it's sink or swim, guys. Let's just work together. It's kind of like what we're seeing right now in the whole coronavirus thing, right? Let's just act, right? But, you know, over time, that old habit of like, you know, we, we know best what to do, just trust us and just do what we say, that gradually didn't sit well with each generation that didn't understand what was the historical context, like, why are you being so hard on us? Why can't we just trust us, you know? And the people in government who still remember that trauma, they will pass down those stories. They would say, like, you guys have no idea how hard the world is and how complex the world is. And I think that that's the tension our country is in right now. Like, how can we empathize and understand with where did that old pattern of the need to control come from and how control is not necessarily a bad thing. It is actually what is allowing uh, Singapore to ride through this pandemic in a fairly like systematic fashion. But at the same time, it's recognizing that control is just one end of the polarity, right? Um, letting the people step it up and lead themselves is the other end of the polarity. And right now, even in this midst of the pandemic, I think the government and the people are trying to figure that out because now it's become super clear that the government can control all at once and lay down the law and say, like, please just you know, stay at home and I'll arrest you if you like stay outside of a bunch of people. And the people can like still sneak around and like, I still want to meet up with my friends for coffee. And it's that 
And the people themselves are realizing, like, it's so clear, like, hey, there's only so much the government can do. Nobody wants the government to go into a full lockdown. Let's arrest every single person we see out there. And yet the people are being challenged with, okay, what do we tell each other then? How do we hold each citizen into account? How do we partner with each other and also partner with the state? I think there's so many profound things we are learning, even as we're struggling to figure out how do we handle this pandemic. Yeah, that has really captured that tension point. I believe you were one of the youngest female parliamentarian, perhaps the youngest female parliamentarian in the history of Singapore. So you have been on that side of seeing what a government is capable of doing for its people and probably also seeing what it's not capable of doing that only the people can do for themselves. What are the pieces that you think are so essential for the people to do for themselves? What is on that side of the line that if the government even tried to do it, they couldn't do it the same way that that people independently can? A government can manage and control everything except what goes on in the human heart and in the human mind. And our minds and our hearts are where all good and bad action <laughs> begins, you know. So, so yeah, like the government can lay down a law that says, do this, don't do that. It's for your own good, right? So let's take the example of please stay at home. And the people can say like, I hear you, but I am going to try and find all kinds of sneaky ways to justify why I really have to go down to the supermarket right now and meet my coincidental friend. So I think that's the difficulty here, that how can the government work together with the people so that, so that the people can come from a space of trust, right? And affection, it's not a word that people associate with government and people relationships, but we're all people. And I think that, that that's one of the things that we forget when we talk about government. Even the people who work in government are very annoyed. Like when people refer to us as government, like who are you talking about? We're all just people here. And I think in all people relationships, only with the people that you love and you trust and you have some genuine affection towards, are you not thinking of all the ways to circumvent the rules and I'm trying to like dodge things? You know, you ask me to do one thing, but I'm finding out 10 ways to do it differently. But if I am in a relationship with you and I get it, you really care for me. You're a hard ass, but I care for you. You care for me. And only from that space can we like, all right, let's make some hard decisions together. And I'm not always trying to undercut your authority. And that goes both ways. Yeah. You have launched a school that's been around now for a long, a long time. Is it 18 years? 18 years? It's wild. Um, you've launched like places for people to come eat in Singapore together. And you've been recently working on a space called Common Ground, where people who you feel are integral to coming together and building the future of Singapore are, are working side by side to do that. And I'm curious, you're passionate about community building, you're passionate about these pieces of building trust and our heads and hearts. What is uh, one of the key philosophies that lives behind the work that you do in cultivating communities? There were three words that have always been with us throughout this like 18 years journey. And I think we wrote those three words without understanding what they were, but it was knowledge empathy and initiative. It was on our name cards from 2002 and it's still there, 2020. And I think that how I would reinterpret this, those words today is 
If you want to build a community, there are three things you kind of want to get right. Number one, knowledge. And by knowledge, it's about cognitive clarity, right? You have to be really clear in your thinking or get clearer and clearer. You're never going to be 100%, but you have to be super vested in getting clearer and clearer and clearer about what is it that you want? Who is this for? Who do you want to be? Who do you want others to be? And these are very profound questions that people don't dwell long enough and deep enough. And like, if you begin a community in confusion and are not interested in getting any clearer, then the community will probably like disperse or, or, or change. So cognitive clarity, getting knowledge right, about how do I do this really well. So it's not about an intellectual fight, but you want to want to become more and more cognitively clear or intellectual or knowledgeable about what is it that you're doing, right? So, so it's trying to find that structure behind things. You've read this in our book, but we make everybody answer the questions who and why. Deceptively simple questions. So profound. And I'm curious, like, how do you answer the question? Who is the who that you care about? And, you know, why are they coming together? What is the vision you have there? Yeah. So if I'm in a party and someone asks the annoying question, hey, what do you do? (laughs) I've learned to sum it up as, usually I begin, it's a bit complicated, but here goes. My job is to help you and your organization develop the social and emotional skills that you need to create the cultural change that you care about. It's not about me. I am here to support you in your journey and I can give you those competencies. But it's about the cultural change you want to see, not about what I want to see because it's not. And I think that's a big problem for some of us in the community building space where we're obsessed with our vision. Like I like my vision of how society should be and you should learn how to create my vision. And I think the delicacy is to go alongside a community builder and say like, what is it that you want to see? Uh, What is so beautiful and heroic about it? And what are the human skill sets you're going to need to get there? I'll let you keep going with the other two words, which I think were empathy and initiative. Yeah. So, So the first about knowledge, which was about cognitive clarity. I think the word empathy for me is about it's not about being nice I think most people mistake empathy for like oh let's just be all care bears and sweet and nice to people and it's not it's about being kind and if you match empathy with cognitive clarity okay so the rule of thumb I give people and when we train them is you got to be clear and kind not just clear you have to be clear and kind It's not about being nice because when you are nice, you bullshit people, right? Yeah, like, oh, yeah, good job. But actually it sucked, right? Or like, that was a great project. No, it wasn't, right? And that is hard because community builders generally like feel very much for the people and the cause and you kind of want to keep up the optimism and the hope. And that's important. But again, we're back to this polarity thing, right? You got to be clear and you got to be kind. Don't be nice. Don't bullshit people, right? And that's actually what helps to build trust. Because people who are just obsessed with, I'm going to be super clear and I'm the major non-bullshitter in the room, right? Well, you're going to piss people off and they don't want to listen to you. Like, they hate you, right? And at the same time, if you're all sweet and kind and you're not very clear, you're not very like, I'm the honest person in the room, then people are going to like, yeah, you're sweet, but you're kind of dishonest. I don't want to follow you. Yeah, so it's that difficult tension of can you be clear and kind? So 
empathy, like a good use of empathy, is about being kind in service of a big picture. Not being kind because it makes you feel good that the person loves you, or being kind so that the whole world thinks that your organization's doing well. And yeah, it is is marrying both. And I think empathy has to be understood with that cognitive clarity. It comes together. The last one is initiative. So once you have that base of I've got the cognitive clarity, I can be honest because I know what's going on, and I'm willing to name what's going on for me, as well as for what I see around. And I know how to match it with being kind. Right? Then you're ready to take action. You're ready to push out an initiative that people are willing to. At least here, and what I find intriguing about initiative, right, taking action is if the only people who are interested in taking initiative together with you are your choir, are all the people who are just like you, then you may not see the systemic change that you want to see. You know, it's like then you sort of like reach your natural glass ceiling and like, okay, we're all happy with each other. We're all doing this thing. We're all saving the environment, but the whole world is a bunch of like idiots who hate the environment or they hate this cause and all that. Then you got to like sit down and think about like, what is your end game? But what are you really here for? Are you really here just to create a little club of like people who are happy together with you, or do you really want to see something change in the world? Because if you do, then you have to be interested in working with the other side, and that's hard. That's really really hard because nobody wants to. I I don't want to. Like I I much prefer being with people who think like me and. And like, oh, we all love community building, you know. But well, community also includes the people who don't want to build community. They don't want to think about such things. So we're back again to that. Like, how can I be kind to you even when you disagree? And yet, to be clear, how do I do that? There isn't a textbook that tells you how to do that with every stakeholder out there. But that, if you can keep that rule of thumb, be clear. And be kind. Don't be nice, so that you can do things together and initiate something that has potential to last. I hear you talking about building communities that we describe stealing other academics' language as bridging communities. So there's this concept of there are bonding communities and bridging communities. Bonding communities are groups of people who maybe look the same or have a similar background. Who come together to just get more solidarity and unity in that shared identity. And bridging communities connect different types of people, diverse types of people, over an interest or a passion point. Here in the United States, one of the bad versions of a bonding community, although they are not all bad, is the Ku Klux Klan. Strong in-group identity and bonding over that strong out-group identity. And bridging, you might see in something like a pickup basketball game or a book club, or uh, a meditation community. Thing. Singapore is an experiment in some ways in bridging, in bridging and bonding, and a very interesting, clear sense of community within groups of different faiths, different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Anyone who's been fortunate enough to travel out there from other parts of the world, you walk through the city and you feel it. It's visually evident. As someone who cares about doing that, as someone who lives in a country where that is urgent, what are some things that you have noticed or that you recommend to people who are passionate about bridging the gaps between groups who may have different cultural assumptions, different values? 
you have to actually honour the other side point of view, even if it's very abhorrent to you. One rule of thumb we teach in our training is you have to meet people where they are, not where you wish them to be. And I think when a person senses that you are willing to meet me where I am, and you're not asking me to be someone I am not, but at the same time, I feel this tension of, we are willing to meet me where I am, but you're also not prepared to leave me where I am. You kind of want me to go with you to somewhere better. But I'm not sure if I like that picture of somewhere better. And I think my somewhere better may not be the same as your somewhere better. But it at least begins with, are you even willing to meet me where I am? And see me as who I am and not judge me as lesser than you. And if I get that sense, then we can start to slowly talk about, all right, now that you've built some trust with each other, where is it that you want to go? Do I like where you want to go? Are you interested in hearing where I want to go? What does the next step look like for us? And it sounds so impossible, but there are historical examples, all these beautiful examples of how it's possible, it's hard, but it's possible, allowing each other to see how layered our identity is. That you are not just the person, the, the title that I thought that you were. You're also a this, and you're also a that, and you're that, and you're that. It comes down to when you have these bridging events that you want people to do together, I think what's nice is to take out the whole identity thing, right? And just allow people to see for themselves. I'm not going to nag you. I'm not going to tell you anything. But in the activity, to allow you to just see human beings being someone that you didn't think they were. So when I read your book, for example, there was that whole example, uh, I think people running together. And then like, you know, there was some, and the guy said, hey, look at the two dudes sitting on the sidewalk. Can you tell me who's the criminal and who's the surgeon or something like that, right? It's like that. So, so, so they are in the activity of running together. And identity doesn't come into the picture. For a short while, I am just a runner. And as I run with you and I talk with you, you hear that, oh, you're a grandfather. Oh, you, you, you're a bagel lover. Oh, you're a Star Wars fan. And then after one hour, oh shit, you're a Republican. But usually after people, and, and these ordinary people, after they've done something like that, they very rarely go back to like, oh, now I'm going to hate you because you're a Republican. And they're going to be like, he's all right. He's Republican, but he's all right. You know, <laughs> he's a Democrat, but, you know, he likes Star Wars, so he can't be that bad. Yeah, so, so I think the beauty of the bridging events is allowing people just to see the different layers of identity that we all have. And that sometimes is enough to break the mental model and the confusion that gives me like some clarity of like, oh, okay, this is who I'm really dealing with. You've alluded to this, but we're in the middle of a global pandemic and you are, you know, someone who runs physical spaces. What are you thinking about with the work that you do to continue to move it forward? So our work is very biased towards face-to-face -to -face interaction, the physicality, the presence of human beings being with each other, and that's what creates trust. And our work is so based on that, that obviously our work was the first to be thrown out of the window when the government's saying, like, distancing time. And it's like, suddenly you're watching all of our training and everything just evaporate like that. And I think there was definitely some mourning and grieving process of, like, what are we supposed to do for work now? Like, what if 
the next 18 months is truly like you may come out to work, but it's strict distancing measures of no more meetups, right? Let's say all training is forced to go online. Then are we saying that our work is no longer relevant? Or are we saying that there must be a new way of community, even if it's online? Is it possible to be together even when we are distanced? I think it's the huge challenge that faces everyone. So one of the things that I love and hate about this whole global isolation process is it's almost an act of God, right? (laughs) Forcing the whole world to like, I know you guys like to do stuff. Well, time to stop. And you're all going to go home, literally, and just learn how to freaking be. Stop doing right? It's almost like, I don't know, like a universal order. I keep seeing this as a, it's our generation's World War Three, but it's also a, a weirdly peaceful World War Three where just go home, stay there. And that's the hardest thing ever. And it made me see that that is a, maybe that is the most profound challenge for our generation. Do you know how to go home and just be and it helped me see that, well, not everybody knows how to just be at home in the most profound way. Like, I can be in my house, but I don't feel at home. And if you're in your house and you don't even feel like you can be at home, like I'm itching to go out for a run, I want to go shop, I want to do all of these things, I don't want to be home. It can tell you something about what's going on for yourself, spiritually, right? It personally, do you know how to be at home in yourself? and the best use of this isolation time. And it made me think about how profound it is, actually, a statement of, do you know how to be at home? Do you know how to be at home? Like, what is home to you? And I think from an existential perspective, being home in yourself is recognizing that if you strip away everything from me that I used to know, do I still know who I am? Do I still know what I care about? Because if I do, then I can figure out what to do next. I can. So it's not about the modalities of community building or like the old forms of work and all that. I think this pandemic is a challenge for all of us to just go home into ourselves, right? And go deep. You can't go outside anymore. You have to be inside, literally and existentially. Go inside and ask yourself, okay, who am I? You take away all of that stuff, but who am I still? What do I care about? Why do I still want to exist in this world? And now what do I want to do next? You can't figure out what's next until you go in, right? And... I think for us, at least, on a on a thought collective level, well, on common ground, if we are forced to bring everything online, then we have to rethink everything that we thought of was necessary to build trust, right? Like, can you create physicality in the digital world, right? If that is your only option. And I think it you can. I think it the I think the same things apply. It's still human beings meeting face to face. And I'm wondering as I do this work of finding my way through community building, I realize so many generations of people have done this. You know, it, there's just waves of people that care about this. And there are folks that I've met who are 80 who have done this. And there are folks that are, you know, 10 years younger than me that care about this. What wisdom would you have offered yourself in 2002 that would be helpful to people that are a little bit earlier on their journey than you are? 
One thing that I see happening around me and community builders, especially those who are super passionate about an issue, is burnout. And I think there's sometimes a lot of guilt or shame that they carry around like, oh man, I'm not good enough to do the whole shit ton of things that I see that need to be done and blah, blah, blah. And, and they just beat themselves up so badly and they sacrifice sleep and mental health and just trying to be the savior of like of whatever issue that they see right and i think um, a wisdom that i always go back to is that the work is not for you to complete it's not for you to finish you know and you have to make peace with that like you are just one small piece in a very very long chain if you like that stretches throughout history you're just one link an important link so do the work as best as you can uh, while taking care of yourself and the people that you love take care of the work but take care of yourself as well and just find some profound rest in accepting that Number one, your work is never going to be completed in your lifetime. And the work is not yours to complete alone. And it's okay that the work is imperfect. And only when you can accept that, then can you keep going on, doing the work in a way that is sustainable, that is enjoyable, that is delightful. So there are community builders that I've met who are like so all in with their work and doing great, producing great results out there, but not producing great results in here. They are damaged inside. They're damaging their marriage. They're damaging their family, damaging their, their community, their immediate community, the ones who get to see the damage close. You know, but everybody outside is like, oh, I love you. You're the best. You know, you're doing so much for blah, blah, blah. But oh, man, like, yeah, inside, in the home, not good. Yeah. So and, and I think that that toxic need to always externalize, like I need to keep doing and doing and doing and doing. Yeah, that comes from a, I'm super insecure, deep within being at home and understanding that I can't do this work well. And actually that can be switched to, I can't do this work well. My work is imperfect. My work will never be completed. My work may never please everyone out there. And that is okay. That's perfectly fine. Just do the work as well as you can. Don't stop doing it. Just keep going. But it's not for you to complete. And every community builder really needs to find that profound rest so that they can do work well. Just go there to be, and by that it could be quiet, it could be just meditative, it could be prayer. It doesn't need to be a religious -y faith space, but it's sort of like a me, right? Just going deep and exploring my own spirit, right? What's going on for me? So, so that's sort of like where we are right now. But I think that whole process sort of captures what we're trying to do in essence in, in Common Ground, which is how can you start to convene ordinary people who may never actually have thought of being part of a process of figuring out stuff together and being absolutely okay with uncertainty. There is no KPI. There's like, there's just a question, a question that 
we hope is of emotional or intellectual or spiritual significance to you and just explore that together not for exploring sake but in the hope that a tangible physical uh, thing comes out that other people can be a part of as well. Xiaoyan, thank you so much for your time. And I really enjoyed listening very closely to so many of the things that you said. Um, so thank you for giving us your time. And we can stop the recording now. So I'll press stop. If you want to connect with Xiaoyan or the Thought Collective, you can follow her on Facebook, facebook.com slash Xiaoyan. That's S-H-I-A-O-Y-I-N as in Nancy. Or check out uh, thoughtcollective.com.sg. You can find out more about us at our website, peopleand.company. Also, our book is on Amazon. Gettogetherbook.com is where you can check it out. And it's full of stories and learnings from conversations with community leaders like this one with Xiaoyin. Oh, and last thing, if you don't mind, please review this podcast or click subscribe. It helps more people find these stories and these wonderful people like Xiaoyin. Great. Thank you. 